Do you crave deep and meaningful conversations? The kind of conversations that jazz you up, stretch your mind, and leave you wanting more? Welcome to Suzanne Says, Courageous Conversations About Life and Living. I'm your host, Suzanne Bird-Harris, and I talk with friends and colleagues about what lights them up, their fears and flaws, who they've been, who they are, and who they're becoming. You know, the stuff that makes and breaks us. So get comfy. Here we go. Something we haven't mentioned, and I should have mentioned it right at the get-go, is that, you know, you're my wife from another life. Yep. We haven't mentioned that. No. And I, I think it's funny. Didn't somebody think when they heard you say that one time that we were divorced? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that we had been married and divorced. <laughs> But for those listening, what it really means is we think that we lived lives before this and that we have lived lives together and that, you know, probably in the one just preceding this, she was my wife <laughs> in that other life, you yeah. know, and then we were born into this and, you know. You know, it, so. it's funny. I, I've i had my Akashic Records read a couple of times mm -hmm. in the last 15 years and the first time the lady told me that this is my 47th incarnation. Wow. And I've had 46 lives before this one. And she told me something about my oldest son in five or six lives back was my brother. And we were in some kind of horrible situation. And we made, I made a pact that I would always take care of him. And the energy of that relationship. Now he's here, he's my son. And I couldn't figure out, like he's wired to, he's very much like me in many ways, hard headed and, you know, thinks he knows every damn thing in the world and knows just terribly, good, terribly good. Looking. Yes, he is. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, he would, when he was younger, he had this thing where he would come and lay all his problems at my feet, like here, fix it. And then if I were to even try, he'd snatch them back and say, no, these are mine. I don't want your solution or whatever. And she said that that was a energetic leftover from that life when he was my younger brother. And we made that pact that I was always going to take care of him. And she's like, we can break that if you want. He's going to feel it in this life if we do. So I need you to know there will be consequences <laughs> if we do this, but we can yes. break it. And I said, no, you know, I think we should break it because number one, it's causing problems in this life for him. Yeah, for me too. But, you know, he's my baby. I want him to be happy and and solid and all of that. I don't want crap. He doesn't even know what's going on to right. him, you know? So we did. And she was right, man. He, he, he felt our relationship was a little bit crispy there for a minute or two. Shifted. Yeah. yeah but um, free of that is when he started really taking ownership of his life and, becoming the man that he is now. And I, I so love for you guys to come back to Tulsa soon and get spend some time with me and my little brood because they are so, I would love to see your perspective on how they've grown and changed as people yeah. in, because what you were here when in 2000. Well, Lex, Lexi was maybe 10, 9, 10, 11 Okay, yeah, I was gonna say you're. It's like 2009 or 10, something like that, because she's probably she's 22 now. Can you believe? I know it's hard to believe. Yeah. So it, I, you know, just before we got on here, Lexi sat down and I got to see her and talk to her mm -hmm. for just a brief time. But um, she's so sweet. I love her. Yeah. She. Yeah, I love all your kids. I'm just. Um, I don't know. They're pretty awesome people. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. Yeah, they are. 
and and in so different ways, so many different ways. So yeah, yeah. I I look at all three of them, and they are so different one from they are yeah. But I see so many like in each of them, I see myself and pieces of me, of course. And well, I'm a, of course yeah. yeah. But um, the thing that the thing that really knocks me out about my kids is if I remove from the equation, the fact that I'm their mother and all the, the pre predestined, of course, you're going to think they're awesome. Suzanne, they're your kids. If I take that out of the equation, they're still fucking awesome people. (laughs) And I'm, I'm a little bowled over as I love the fact that, you know, kids are kids for such a very short, we're all, our childhoods is such a small part for most of us of our entire lives. We're adults far longer than we are children. And as a mother, even before I had kids, I just had this sense of, I want to have kids because I want to enjoy being alive when these people I help to create are alive and adults and living their own lives. Yes, it was great to have kids at home, but I'm really enjoying who they are now as adults with their own lives and their own perspectives. And it's just so awesome that when I remember that I, I'm their mom, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. It just, it's the one thing out of my whole life that I knew for sure I wanted to be was a mother and well growing up in the 70s you know I thought that meant grow up get married have babies you know apparently the only thing I wanted was children was the babies yeah I've been able to manage the married part very well at all but (laughs) well you know I'm just the opposite I never wanted children um, it was just not in my makeup to to want to have children. I just never did. It was very disappointing to my parents, of course, that I didn't want to have children. But, um, you know, Bill did. That was really a driving force for him was that he wanted to be a dad. Mm-hmm. And he was. And so I just love his children. Mm-hmm. And I love everybody else's children. It's just like um, I love dogs and cats. And I don't have a dog of my own right now and probably won't for another while because it's too easy just to, we like to travel too much. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, you know, I'm a, I, I could easily be a dog parent or cat parent. I'm kind of a cat parent right now, but um, yeah, I just have never, I love everybody else's animals. You know, I get to love on everybody else's dogs. We go to a lot of events where there's a lot of dogs. Mm-hmm that people bring. And so I get to love on everybody else's dogs without having the responsibility of my own. <laughs> but we do have, you know, a cat that lives with us that. It's kind of a, they've, that cat has adopted you guys, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I love that cat. Oh my God. I could, could sit and look at him for hours and I worry about him when he's not in here and <laughs> I want him in here at night. And it's just like, you know, I'm crazy about this cat. <laughs> so and, you know, he was a stray, so. Yeah. But he's come to love us a lot, and he hangs out with us all the time. And we just can't really pick him up. And I want to rub his belly so bad, and he won't let me. So, <laughs> And I carry his marks all the time because he scratches me continually. But I, it's not mean scratches. I think they're love scratches. So Yeah. So, yeah, you know, um, I had dogs for a long time, and those were my children. And I understand that with people who do have yeah. dogs. And I understand people's. Well, I'm not always sure that I understand people's drives to have children, but um, I know that like with Bill's daughter, they wanted a kid so bad and then couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, you know, so, but Ben's, you know, in our life now and he's nine. Can you believe that? Oh. And so, um, you know, we just dote on him and get to do the grandparent thing. And I like being the grandparent. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of fun. I get to give him back, you know, when, <laughs> when I've had enough. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh my goodness. So does so does this mean that um in our next life you're gonna be my husband and I'll be your wife? Is who that knows? are we gonna swap? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I know this. we will find each other again because we have already. I know. Yeah. And I think that goes back to that whole 
energy thing. And I think personally, I think that's how we are all connected is the energy of, I don't know if you've been in the room when someone has died in their presence. I have. I have twice now, and I very much felt them leave the room. Yeah. And whatever that is, my word for it is their energy, their spirit, whatever. Um, whatever that is, I think that is the connective thing between all of us and the world in which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's limited to connection with people because. I know people who have very strong connections with animals and nature. And I just think that for all that we know, it is but a tiny speck of what there is to know. And for someone as curious as me, that's just freaking awesome. I know for me too. (laughs) Yeah. I want all the answers. I have so many, I have so many times, I have have so many instances of, and it happened to me again last night that I have what I've come to term my what's it all about Alfie moments Mm -hmm. because I really just sometimes wonder what are we doing? I mean, how did we come to be here? We are human beings. You know, I can't believe either that we would be the only ones out here. It's just like, um, I, I don't know. It's just, it blows my mind sometimes when I think about it and I think, what's it all about? What really is it all about? And, you know, the only thing I can come up with is like you and I are talking about is I think it comes down to just loving people. We just got to love each other. Yeah. But boy, howdy, we got some work to do in that area, don't we? Yeah, we do. And I yeah. think I think uh, that we can do the best job of that by first learning how to love ourselves. Yeah. Do you think that... Love conquers all or something else. That's a really poorly phrased question for what is in my head. So let me, let me take a minute and think about what I'm getting at is you, you just said that you think we're just, we just need to love each other and that's why we're here. And there are certainly religious answers to why are we here. There are um, more practical answers to why we're here. I Like you, my first recollection of that kind of uh, being aware of thinking something like that was when I was three. I remember laying oh, wow. in my bed at night trying to go to sleep because, you know, <laughs> bless my parents, I was that child who could fully operate on four hours of sleep. And I was the last dog dead and the first one up in the morning and I just wore them <laughs> the hell out, you know? And I was constantly asking questions and I'm sure mom invested in duct tape. I don't remember wearing it, but I surely had to have because I don't know how she could have stayed sane or maybe she didn't. I don't know. <laughs> but I remember because of the house we lived in, um, that's how I know how old I was, but I was laying there trying to go to sleep and it hit me. Where was I before I was here? Like trying to remember my little three-year-old brain going, where was I? And then, Oh, where am I going to be when I'm not here anymore? And I was really frustrated by the fact that I could remember nothing about where I was before. And, and it astounds me now as an adult to even recognize that at three years old, I was coming at that question from the perspective of, well, of course I was somewhere. What three-year-old thinks like that? But Suzanne, but well, yeah, but I think there's more that more than just me, because, you know, I also believe that we come we come in, we're born with, you know, all the icky stuff that happens to us in this life, all the bad traits that adults end up with. I don't think we were born with that stuff. It's learned behavior. It's response to conditions. It's, yeah. it's, it's the humanness of our, of this life. Yep. So 
if that's the case, then we were born when we're born, we're nothing but love. Yeah. And all, you know, racism and, and prejudice and all of that stuff is learned behavior, often very subtle and insidious, but it's learned. I don't think we, I don't think humans are born to separate one from another. I think we're, you know, kids are so open. They're so, um, accepting and you can be your weird ass self with the kid and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's just you. All right. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I believe all, I just believe that all children, that all of us are born into pureness and goodness and, and love, you know? Um, and yes. And then it gets literally sometimes beat out of us Yeah. Um, with some children. Mm -hmm. Um, you talking about asking to so many questions of your mom and dad. When I was a little boy, um, we lived with an aging aunt and uncle. They had um, never had children of their own, and they were both very, very old and both in poor health. And my uncle Henry was literally on his, you know, on his deathbed. He never got out of his deathbed. Let's put it that way. He he had gotten sick and wound up in. So back then the doctors made house calls. Right. So our old family doctor, the guy that brought me into the world, um, would come and uh, to take care of Uncle Henry. And I guess I was in there running my mouth, asking question after question after question, you know, and <laughs> whatever. And I didn't shut up until I till he left. And so one time he was there and he I was about to start school in the first grade. We didn't have kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So I was about to start school in the first grade. And he said, um, Marty, he said, I want to make a bet with you. And I'm like, okay. He says, if you can make it through the third grade without getting a spanking for talking, he said, I will give you $5. Ooh. And $5 was a lot of money back Big then. Big money, yeah. Big money. He said, but if you get a spanking, you have to give me a nickel. So that was the deal was I would give him a nickel. Okay. So after the first year of school, I did not get a spanking for talking. And so he, Uncle Henry was still living at that time. And he, uh, and the, Dr. Humes said to me, you know, he came in and he gave me the $5. He said, I'm going to give, he said, I'm going to end our bet and give this to you early because he said, if you've made it through the first grade without getting a spanking for talking, then he said, you're going to be fine for the rest of the time. So <laughs> I never got a spanking for talking, but I always got marks on my report card for talking yeah. too much. Yeah. And my friend Lucy and I, <laughs> sat and she sat in front of me and I sat behind her and we were always, she and I were always in trouble for talking. Didn't matter what grade we were in. It seemed like we were always in the same class, a small school, uh, small community. And so she's, she was always sitting right in front of me. And so one time we got in trouble, she got in trouble. Well, we, I guess we both did because I was talking behind her and she was leaning back to hear me. <laughs> Which was the indication to the teacher because the teacher apparently couldn't see me talking. <laughs> so anyway, we both got in trouble for that. And she and I, neither one of us have ever forgotten that from to this day. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I was always getting in trouble for talking and I always got marks on, but I never got a spanking for it. So <laughs> yeah, I um, made it all the way through 13 years of school without ever getting detention, ever getting sent to the principal's office. But I was stealthy about my stuff because I knew I wanted no part of the consequences of having to go home and tell my parents oh. that I yes. got in trouble at school. So I I had to go underground, you know. Well, same here. If, if I'd gotten in trouble at school, I'd have been in worse trouble at home. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I didn't want any part of that. And I loved school. School was I did too. School was a place where all my curiosity and inquisitiveness actually worked. Mm -hmm. You know, they they loved that. Like it's the one place where I didn't get the eye roll at another question, you know. Yeah. And I was good I at it. Yeah, even though I came from a very small community and a you know, real small group of uh, small school. 
um, I still feel like that I got a really excellent education. You probably did get a much better education from the perspective of uh, one-on-one time with the teacher and, you know, it wasn't yeah. such a uh, herding cats kind of situation for us in school as much as it is now. Yeah. I wish that I'd had the presence of mind to um, write letters to my old teachers before they died, but they're, you know, virtually all of them. I think they're all gone Mm -hmm. now. All the teachers I ever had are gone. Hard to, hard to think about. That's true for me because the youngest, well, maybe Kathy Pilgrim is still alive. She was in her early 20s when I was in third grade. She was my third grade teacher. And she was brand spanking new. And I really loved her. Um, She may, I hope she's still alive. But everybody else was significantly older than her. Yeah. My second grade teacher was young. It wasn't until years later that this same friend, Lucy, she says, you know, Mrs. Grayson was only about five or six years older than us. (laughs) I'm sure it was more than that, but you know, she was in her early twenties. So my fifth grade teacher, Ms. Kaufman, she was actually my neighbor and she and her dad, he was a widower and she was a spinster and they lived down the street from us. And I know, you know, this, I've told you this story before, but they had a cocker spaniel named Susie. (laughs) <laughs> and when we moved that, when mom and dad bought that house, um, it was between kindergarten and first grade for me. So, oh, Vicky was born in 70. It was the summer of 1970 that we moved into that house right before my first grade year. And they went to our church. So I'd see them on Sundays. And so a few years and and because we went to church together and we had moved on to that street, Miss Kaufman would have me, either me and my next younger sister, Kathy, or me and my friend, Melanie, who lived not far between my house and the school. She would have us come to the classroom a couple days before school started to help her, you know, put books on the shelves to decorate the bulletin boards and do all the setup of her classroom. And there was a five and dime candy store about a block from the school. And she paid us like what, two bucks or something for a whole Saturday's worth of work. And boy, howdy, we went to that candy store and cleaned up with two bucks and came home. We were sugared out for, Oh Lord. It was like Halloween, you know, and we did that for a number of years. And then um, I had her, I think, she, I'm pretty sure she was my fifth grade teacher. Because I remember, I think that's where they got really heavy into learning how to write cursive. Mm-hmm. And I'm a lefty. And back then, it was still very much the proper so-called proper thing to do is to make lefties write with their right hand and conform and failing that um you know when you learn to write cursive they have you turn your paper uh (laughs) one way or another you know well always turning tilting it toward the left for right-handed people well many teachers still did that with lefties which made us lefties yeah yeah the hook on our yeah. because of the way the paper was positioned. But Miss Kaufman, she wasn't having that. She's like, nah, you just turn your paper the other way, Susie. And so I did. And I had, I, well, it's not as good as it used to be, but I <laughs> had very, very good penmanship as a lefty. And I never, because of- I don't write with that hooked wrist yeah. going on. And I have her to thank for that. And, um, that's the positive side of having them live on our street. <laughs> the negative side of having them live on our street was my couldn't play hooky. <laughs> well, my my well, not no. I would never. Are you kidding? I would never. <laughs> Me either. Well, cool. I did, in, when I was a senior, I, and that's the other thing I never did. Not even in high school. I never skipped school ever. I did. Um, but uh, because 
when we moved into that house on that street, that neighborhood was rife with kids. Almost every house had kids in it. But they were all boys, except for there was another girl a few houses down. She, um, her name was Joy. She was a real pain. She was not a joy. She was a real pain in the butt. <laughs> but she was it. It was either play with my sisters or play with her. And none of them were my age. I was older than most of the kids by a couple of years. And so anyway, this neighborhood, it's not like here in Tulsa where everybody's got a fence. Um, the backyards were open. So on a block, it was like a city park back there. You could rip and run the whole length of the block and all the whatever that people had done in their backyards, you know, there was no barrier. And so we'd play hide and seek and um, just had the whole run of that block. And, and we played baseball and softball and stuff back there. And, um, but the neighborhood's full of boys and Mr. Kaufman's name, dog's name is Susie. And so my name is Susie growing up and so, you know, those little punk ass boys, they barked at me, barked at me, Marty. I'm like, oh, and not in the cat call kind of way. They're right. barking at me. It was mean. Yeah. And then this little knothead that lived next door, Johnny McCall. I will never forget his name. Oh, <laughs> it'd be funny if he listened to this. Yeah. Um, his mama had a trellis that, uh, like our houses faced on our side of the street. We our houses faced south. So on the west side of her garage, she had a trellis that ran the length of the garage, upon which she grew sweet peas flowers, and they and I love sweet peas. And there was about. Probably the trellis was at the base was probably about a foot and a half away from the side of the garage. And then it leaned to the garage, you know, so there was this triangular hidey hole under there and I would go under there and read. I'd take my books. I'd, I'd just hide from everybody under there because in the heat of the afternoon sun, those sweet peas were pungent and, oh man, I'd go under there and I'd get all comfy and, read my book and just have that aroma of those flowers. And it was warm, but not hot. Cause you know, back in when I was growing up back East in Pennsylvania, they didn't have 90 degree weather like they no, not like they do now. Um, so, you know, it was mid eighties. It was just a nice, warm, perfect summer day, most of the summer. And so I'd hide under there. Well, he got wind of that and took great, he was affronted by the fact that I was squatting on, on his property. And uh, so he convinced the other boys in the neighborhood that I must be punished. And so one time we were playing hide and seek, I think it was. And they, he got the bright idea that, Chasing us back to home base, he's gonna whip out his ding ding and pee on us. Chase us peeing it on us. And that was something we couldn't retaliate because we were girls. Oh, you know that went over like a lead balloon with me. I was so heated. Oh my gosh, I thought you little pipsqueak. <laughs> I'm gonna get you. And so I remember I somehow or another. I snuck up behind him, like came around the side of a garage or a bush or something and snuck up behind him. And I just need him in the ass as hard as I could. And, oh, he went home a crying and a screaming. <laughs> Not 20 minutes later, my mother's getting a phone call from the neighbor lady talking about your daughter almost popped one of my son's testicles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, that's what he gets. Tell him to keep his little pee-pee in his pants. And, of course, she wouldn't right. believe that he was doing that. And um, I can't remember his last name, but the the his friend, two doors down, his name was Richie. And the two of them, 
they just would not, even after that happened, they just would not let it go. At every chance they got, they're whipping out their little sprinklers and chasing us, trying to pee on us. And I'm like, Boys. Ah, this is what, that 70s show, you didn't see that kind of, because those, well, those characters were teenagers in the 70s. (laughs) But yeah, elementary school kids, that's what we got up to in Western Pennsylvania. We'd play softball, we'd play hide and seek, we'd play tag, and they'd try to pee on us. That was, (laughs) that was the fun thing for them. But yeah, between getting barked at for years And I'm like, you know, I lived on that street from from first grade to eighth grade. And that's when we left Pennsylvania between eighth and ninth grade for me. And so seriously, eight years of boys barking at me because there was a dog on the street with the same name. Let me tell you something. That did something to my own perception of how boys and eventually men are going to look at me. (laughs) And, you know, I'm just putting this together now. I don't even know if I want to say this on a recording, but, (laughs) but you know, it, it, um, so many things influence how we see ourselves. So many things. And in my experience, it's the ones that, are so subtle that stick with you. It's not that it has to be subtle to stick with you. It's the ones that of the ones that stick with you, the subtle ones are the hardest to deal with because obviously they don't make their presence known as much as the more flashy ones that affect us. And it was also in that neighborhood that, um, The summer between fourth and fifth grade, I went from being completely flat chested, could run around playing like that with no shirt and nobody would say anything, to that summer, boobies erupted on my chest in a big way. I mean, I went from, I was the only girl in our entire elementary school that wore a bra for a year and a half. I was the only one. And I didn't, I skipped over A and B, I swear. No training bras for me. Their training was, never mind, skip that. And I had, for that year and a half, I had a perpetual bruise in the middle of my back from boys snapping my bra. Oh my goodness. And so here I am, I'm in this neighborhood with mostly boys and my three sisters in this little snarky heifer down the street, Joy. And they're barking at me because I have the same name as the dog down the street. They're chasing us around, trying to pee on us. And then I erupt with boobies and oh, the field day they had with that. Like, you know, it's no wonder I got to adulthood some with some really screwed up stuff in my head about about how the world sees me. Because man, if I, I think that singularly was the thing, the first thing that just really made me feel like I didn't belong where I was is that sudden eruption of a chest. And it was so much, so much earlier than all of my girlfriends and certainly my sisters. I really felt like the odd duck for a long time because of that. And yet it's the most, I mean, Happens to every girl, pretty much, to one degree or another, you know. Yep, sooner or later. Yeah, and, you know, my mother, um, she had four of us to deal with, and I'm the oldest, and uh, she probably would have told you the most pain in the butt of all of them, because, and, you know, I think at least 25% of that is because I'm the oldest, and I'm the one Mm -hmm. trying stuff first, and getting all the branches in my face, but... Um, yeah, it's when I think about stories like that and how it affected me then and now, it really dawns on me the weight of responsibility that you take on when you say, oh, I think I want to have a a kid. It's like 
think any of us, well, maybe the people that want to have kids and have trouble tr getting there and, you know, maybe those folks actually do think through all of what they're really trying to, you know, do to themselves. But I guarantee you, I, it's only now that I am a parent that I understand the weight of how, just how much what I do and say, or what I don't do or what I don't say affects these little humans that I've brought to the planet. And I, at the same time, you'd think that would make me like, oh, I don't know, like more vigilant or more rigid or more whatever. But really thinking about that and how big a responsibility it is and how much influence we have with our kids helps me to understand that, you know what? I'm, it, I think the biggest thing it did was help me to understand the difficult job my parents had with me. And in my own experience, I have every bit as uh, intense child. I've got two of them that are very, very intense personalities. Um, I give myself a lot of grace in that because being one of those intense children, I have some understanding about what it's like for my kids, you know, and I've done some, some selective things very differently with my kids than with that my parents did with me. And my goal in that was I almost, it's almost like I have this attitude about their childhood. Like, okay, look, I'm going to do the best I can with what I know and what I've got available to me resource wise for you during this time. But this if I could fast forward, we would, because I can't wait for you to be adults. And I want to give you a good foundation. Absolutely. But this is not the, for me, being a mother. Yes, it's lovely with their, you know, the little three-year-old Lexi. Oh my God, she's so cute. <laughs> Joe, all of them. <sighs> Childhood is great, but that's not the part of motherhood I enjoy most. I am just now getting into the part of motherhood I enjoy most. And that is being the mother of adult children, even though I've said, and you'll hear me probably say again, I'll take 10 toddlers over any one adult child any day of the week, as far as how much trouble can they <laughs> give you. But I love being a parent and having a great connected, open relationship with these humans that you know that I brought here it's just so awesome I just love watching them and I love I learn from them as much as probably as much or more than I ever taught them anything <laughs> I probably taught them what not to do <laughs> yeah you know and I'm probably I think Joe would probably say I'm still doing that a very fine thing <laughs> I give him a headache all the time, but then I go, you know, there's a goal accomplished. That's definitely on my list. I want to be a problem to my children in my dotage. Uh, yeah. And I'm getting some good practice in now. Yes. So. Bill and I were, Bill and I were talking this morning about um, William Shatner and he said, isn't he a bit of a curmudgeon? And I said, well, maybe, but I mean, he said the man's 90 years old. I'd say he's entitled to be a, yeah. Curmudgeon, I said, I'm going to be eccentric. So I said, when I'm about 80, I'll be, I'll be eccentric. Um, although I have had other people tell me that I'm already eccentric. So. so tell me what that means. What being eccentric? Yeah. Well, it means being able to get away from, get away with everything. Um, um, talk trash talking. Um, rabble rouser, huh? Yeah, um, that's to me, you know, some people might think eccentric is um, stuck up and refined and all that kind of stuff, but not in my book. It's going to be the time to let loose. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's a better word for it, but. Hmm. 
Yeah, I had never heard that word used in that context before. <laughs> yeah, I should look it up sometime to see what the actual definition of eccentric actually is. Yeah, you might want to stop saying that based on what you find. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be a I definitely don't want to be a curmudgeon, but I you know, I might be the one that say, Get off my lawn. Yeah, well, that to me is very curmudgeonly. Yeah. But I think that there's an element of that that our our patience for bullshit is waning with every year, I think. I think so too, yeah. And how we express that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's a graceful way to do it. And then there's, get off my lawn, be the one that the kids in the neighborhood are afraid of. I don't want to be Yes, that. I don't want to be that. No. no. I really don't want to be that. You know what? That's That's fine because I think that, well, that gives us a jump on what's the advice? Fly your freak flag, be who you are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes. you've got eccentric in the bag already. You're you're more than halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's one thing is I've I've never really hidden who I am. So, you know, it's like I am what I am and who I am. I am who I am, and I've never really hidden that too much. I don't I don't think. Maybe I have, but I sure had spent a lot of time in my early adulthood, not so much hiding who I am, but not really being me, but instead trying to be the version of me that somebody else wanted to see. Well, you know, I'm probably very guilty of that because um, that's been one of my big challenges is in focusing on things is that um, I've listened to too many people say, oh, no, that's not you'd be bored with that or, Oh no, that's not what you should be doing. Or, or, you know, coming back at me with that. Well, you've just got to focus. You've just got to focus. Yeah. No, you don't. And then everything will be all right. Um, and so I've been a people pleaser, I guess all my life. So I guess I have been kind of phony in that regard as, you know, um, that, and I got that from my mother. My mother was one that, I always felt like she cared more about what other people thought than what we thought or what she thought of herself. Hmm. Um, and so I think I got a little bit of that or a lot of that maybe from her that um, I do care what people think. And, and yet there's a part of me that, that doesn't care what people think, you know, and I think maybe that's coming with age mm -hmm. more than it was when I was younger. I had a very you know, defining moment in my early 40s where uh, I could almost feel my give a shit, get up and leave the building. <laughs> like, I was so, so stressed out and so I had tied myself up in so many knots I didn't think I could undo. And I just like, I just remember, why do I give, why do I care so much? These people aren't doing anything for me here. Why do I care what they think? Screw them. Ugh. And it was, it's been a, a, you know, peeling the layers of the onion process ever since. I, I can't claim that I flipped a switch and all of a sudden didn't give a shit. That's not. Yes. But the awareness of another way to look at life and not put so much weight or stock in what other people thought, but instead learn to hear and listen to my own voice on these things. That's that's probably the best description of the last 15 years of my life that any I could come up with. Yeah. And it's done nothing but improve things. Maybe not visibly from the outside anyone looking on in many ways. For you personally. Yeah, in many ways my life doesn't look a lot different. You know, I have less kids at home because they've, you know, they've been growing that whole time. Right. Um but inside how I, how I feel and how I think and the difference in how when this me in here looks out through these big old brown eyes at the world, what I'm concluding is drastically different than it used to be. And that's yeah. A good thing. yeah, it is a good thing. And I'm the same way as I'm get, as I get older. Yeah. You know, it's funny uh, talking about caring about what people think and all. It used to be that I wouldn't go out of the house unless I was perfectly coiffed. You know, mm -hmm. it's like my hair had to look good. 
clothes had to look good, um, had to smell good, everything, you know, it was like, now it's like, if I need to go to the grocery store, I really don't care. I just go Walmart now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm one of the people of Walmart. I don't think I'm quite as bad (laughs) as some I've seen, but, um, yeah, I just don't care. I mean, I dress, you know, decent, but I just had to throw out a pair of shorts that were so full of holes but they were so comfortable and I would wear them out in public until Bill finally said to me one day, you know, you probably should not be wearing those in public. (laughs) Um, So I finally had to throw them out and get a different pair. But you know, you find a pair of pants that you like and you just wear them all the time. In our case out here, it's always shorts. Although I was at at the um, grocery store last night and the, last yesterday afternoon late and the cashier was one of those real chatty kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And with the people ahead of me, he had to comment about everything they bought, which I think is rude of a cashier. You know, mm-hmm. it's the cashier should not be commenting about the things you buy. No, okay. And he picked up something that they bought cause they bought a whole bunch of them. They're here visiting and apparently they have a place with a kitchen. And so he bought a, picked up something that they were buying these rice dishes or something, you know, you just put water in them and heat them up and, and, um, he said, are these good? And what I was thinking was, I wish the guy had come back and said, no, we buy them because they taste like shit. You know, that's what I would have. That's what I was thinking is, no, they buy them because they taste like shit. That's why they're buying these things. But anyway, hey, Carlin, he, he, ch- hey, just, he chast- huh? just one note here. That's a little curmudgeonly of a risk. <laughs> yeah, he. um <laughs> And then he chastised me for wearing shorts because he thought it was cold outside. Oh, well. It was 75 degrees. <laughs> that is hardly cold. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. I'd like to get off on these things. Oh, I don't know. It's just the beautiful way our conversations go from one thing to another. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Uh, mm. Oh, I guess the point is, is that these days I'm not as... I mean, if I was going to speak at an event, of course, I would dress nice and care. But now I don't have to get in the shower first and spend, the, you know, 30 minutes or an hour getting ready to go out. I just get in the car and go. Yeah. So I try to be somewhat decent. <laughs> yeah. It decent. depends on where I'm going as to how much I care, where I'm going and why. You know, yeah. I'm just going to run to the store real quick. Fooey on it. I'm going like this because. Me too. But, you know, I'll go, when I go out to Patsy's bar and do karaoke, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to look good there. Well, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to hide <laughs> the, the awesome shining light that is me, but whatever. <laughs> I have to put, I have to put on makeup to tone it down a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, you brought up earlier about um, loving ourselves. It's really important that more important probably to love ourselves than it is to love other people. And I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of my challenges, too, of my whole life, because um, there's things that I did in my past that I'm not real proud of. Nothing terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and things that I didn't handle well that I wished I'd done differently and things like that. And I have a real hard time letting go of the past like that. Really, You know, you can't do anything about it. And if I was dealing with a client, I would be really adamant with them about them letting that thing go because you can't do anything about it now. And yet I'm really guilty of that myself. Um, Maybe it's not learning to love yourself that you need to learn is maybe it's to forgive yourself. Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing. And but maybe that's the biggest thing towards loving yourself. Yeah. There's a really good book talking about books earlier. There's a really good book called um, love yourself. Like your life depended on it. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the guy's name that wrote it, but um, he was in pretty bad, pretty dire straits with himself. And he literally recovered from whatever all was happening with him by laying in bed and saying, I love myself. I love myself. I love myself like over and over and over and over again. Hmm. Um not just surface level, but he, mm-hmm. it started out that way, but then eventually it became to mean something to him, you know, and, and Louise Hay, of course, you know, I've always loved Louise and um, her thing has always been too about loving yourself. And, you know, she wrote a whole book about doing mirror exercises to help you love yourself. That's and, my barometer for how well I'm 
how how good is my relationship with myself? What I use to measure that by is can I look myself in the mirror and say I love you and mean it and not feel crunchy about it? Yeah. And there were many days that I couldn't even, there was a time I couldn't even look at myself in the eye, much less say something like that, mean it and not feel crunchy. The crunchy stayed for a long time. It's not there now though. It really is amazing how you can look in a mirror and not see yourself. Yeah. I mean, literally not see yourself. You're doing things or whatever, and you're doing it in front of a mirror, like brushing your teeth and things like that which would be a good opportunity to look in your eyes and mm-hmm. do some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I would say that, you know, 90% of the time or more, I never see, I don't really see myself in a mirror. Hmm. You're not looking, huh? Uh-uh. And I think we get blind to things too. You know, they tell us to hang up, you know, post-it notes or whatever to remind yourself about things. After a while, I think you go blind to those things as well. They're there. Mm-hmm. You don't see them anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not engaging with it. It would help you if you did. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got some things hanging on the mirror right now that, I mean, that they're right there. I have something, I have been practicing a boot up process for the machine mm. that is Suzanne. And <laughs> uh, that's how I think about it because it's easy to relate to, you know, like starting up my computer or whatever. And, um, I've been working a lot on setting, setting my tone and attitude for the day before I even get out of bed. Nice. And it's really made a big difference. Um, I get through the day with a lot less drama, um, now because I've got, I take the time in the morning to to think about what I know of what's coming on that day, what I've got ahead of me. And if there's anything particularly, or, you know, whatever, then I get, I give myself the opportunity to like shore up and gird up for whatever's coming. And not that that happens very often. My days are mostly pretty, pretty awesome. Um, But, you know, if I've got a, something I have to do that I don't really particularly want to do, but I know I need to get done or whatever. Um, It has really made a difference in how I feel. And, you know, Landon and I talk a lot about, um, and this is his, he says that the point of life is to feel as good about ourselves when we're by ourselves as Mm. And I think to myself, I think about that and I look around and I get so curious about how well the people in my world actually do that for themselves. Like, and not in a judgy way, but curious, because I know my own struggle with it to feel good about who I am and how I'm showing up in the world. Um, and I know a lot of people who cannot be with themselves alone. It drives them insane. They just, they just can't, they can't be still with themselves. And I, I really feel for them because that is, that is something that I would also not want to live without the ability to do is to be with myself and sit with myself and, and, Cause I know every single terrible thing I've ever done or said in my whole life. And I am at the place now where I can sit with myself and be with myself and be okay with who I'm with and actually feel good about who I am. And it's not, I am absolutely nowhere near perfect. No, not even on the same continent as perfect, but <laughs> me either, but I am pretty awesome and have a lot of things going for me, not least of which is my insatiable drive to learn, grow, and be a better human. And, you know, there are people in my life who would hear me say that and go, what the actual fuck? 
fuck are you talking about, you old hag? But that's how I've learned it really is more. Other people's opinions of us are more about them than us. Oh, yeah. That really is true. So the only opinion, that, you know, talking about decision making and stuff, um, I posted this meme on Facebook multiple times but recently uh, that says, the more you love your own decisions, the less you need anyone else to love them. And boy, is that true. Because if you're a thinking individual and you put time and effort into coming up with the decisions that you make, then if you're good with them, everybody else can kick rocks, you know? And yes, you may bear some consequence of other people not liking them so much, but again, do you have control over that? Nope. So how much energy is it worth putting into trying to manipulate or control that by your own behavior? Because that's the only thing you can change. You know, and I'm like, yep. no, that slides me right back into not being me. So, <laughs> on that, no, they can like it or lump it. Oh, well, you'll be all right. And if you don't want to play with me, don't. Bye. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't know if, you know, people, you know, the whole curmudgeon word. I mean, old men who display that type of attitude, that's the label they get. But. Is that was really what's going on inside them? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's just the easy way to keep people at arm's length, you know? Yeah. The more abrasive you are, I, I've tested this theory. The more abrasive you are, the more people will leave you be. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yes. So I have developed the ability to be a little off-putting <laughs> that I trot out <laughs> when necessary. <laughs> Beyond the whole just natural, not everybody's going to love me the way I am. It's okay. But, yeah. <laughs> it's true. You know, you, we, when we started this conversation, you were talking about um, end of life being much more present in your thoughts than mm -hmm. ever before. And that has been true for me for the last couple of years as well, ever since mom died. And for me, it's, I don't feel it's particularly morbid, but it is much more present in my awareness than ever before that there's nobody above me on the family tree. Now I'm the oldest child. My parents are gone. All my grandparents are gone. Um, there's lateral family, you know, I've got cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff, but in this branch, I'm it, I'm at the top. And both of my parents died in their 75th year. Um, yeah, that's so young. Yeah, it is. And dad before his birthday and mom after hers. And, but both in their 75th year. And I think to myself, oh shit, what if I die when I'm 75? Well, crap, that's only 18 years from now. Whoa, whoa, no, that's not enough time. And, you know, it's not that I'm, I'm not particularly afraid of death, uh -uh. Um, but I will be one pissed puppy if it happens anytime soon. So I'm so <laughs> not done with this place. Yeah. That's me. I'm not done either. And I, that unlike you, I'm not afraid of dying. Um, as much as I have contemplated it, it's not so bad right now, but I tell you, there was many times over this past year or so that I just, especially when I would go to bed at night, mm -hmm. getting ready to go to sleep, you know, or at the most inopportune times when I didn't want to be thinking about dying, it's like, where the hell did that come into my head? You know? Um, but I know that it's a very real thing and a very real possibility. And, you know, a lot of people do die around that age, around 75, 78. Um, uh, here, you know, we read the obituaries <laughs> in the paper, in the morning paper. And um, it's really surprising the number of people who die in their late 60s and their in their early 70s. And if you watch some of these programs like CBS Sunday Morning, when they talk about these famous people or they 
show these famous people who have died. A lot of them die in their early to mid seventies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's something to think about. Um, and yet my dad lived to be 95, you know, I thought he lived to be a hundred and he probably would have, but I think he just finally gave up. Yeah. Just like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. My parents died in their 75th year, but all my grandfather my did grand, too. All of my grandparents, I believe were in their eighties and beyond. And my, my dad's dad was 92. My mom's mom was 90. Uh, and my mom's mom, she was just tired of doing daily life. She was all by herself. Yeah. Grandpa had been gone for years. People, her friends and peers were dropping like flies at, you know, church. And her most frequent social activity was attending a funeral, you know, like we talked about before. And she just was done. She and that crazy old woman. She was so proper all of her life. So um, her her goal in life was to remove anything that anybody could say about her that was negative. She put an untold amount of pressure on herself doing that. And it's amazing to me that she lived as long as she did with that kind of stress. I mean, can you imagine trying to remove any negative thing anybody could have to say about you? And shoot yeah but she was just done and she so she she laid down on her couch and she said okay god i'm ready come get me and she laid there for three days and the neighbor she had this little ritual with the neighbor she'd open her kitchen curtain above the sink in the morning when she woke up and close it when she was going to bed at night and that was a signal to Marcia next door that she was up and around or that she was shutting down the day, you know? Well, it took three days of none of that happening for Marcia to call my mom out here in Oklahoma and say, uh, yeah, I think something's up with your mother over there. Cause I haven't seen the curtains open in a couple of days. And I think we need to check on her. Well, mom's like, well, get over there and check on her. Well, Marcia goes over there and there she is laying on the couch waiting for God to come and get her. Hadn't eaten, hadn't, you know, done anything. She just laid down and like, here I am laying in the road. Come get me. And she was mad in the little hand that like, I don't know why I'm still here. Why can't I go home? And I thought, I hope I, I understand objectively that perspective, but I hope I never get to the place where I understand it experientially because I don't want to get to the place where I don't have a reason to get up and do another thing. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I don't want to be so done or so jaded or so disappointed or so lonely or so anything that it would make me want to be done living. I just don't want any part of that perspective. No, I don't either. Yeah, my dad was 95 and he decided that he was ready to go and announced to everybody he was ready to go. Now, he did go in about three weeks, but it took him three weeks. I was mad because it was just like, oh, my God, you said you were going. Let's get it on the road. Let's get this show on the road. I love you dearly. <laughs> I've enjoyed being here with you, but we got to, you know. Oh, yeah, because I remember even, that. They did the whole call everybody home thing. Oh, yeah. It's like either get out of this bed and walk. Or get on with it. Mm-hmm. And I felt so guilty for feeling that way. But after it went on for three weeks, and I because I had rushed there, literally, mm-hmm. we had rushed there. Dropped everything uh, and go, yeah. Dropped everything and went. So it's kind of fun. I was teaching classes at the time. I remember. So yeah. yeah. So at least I had um at least I had a class to get to to teach every day. Yeah. Um it was a little different being in the Eastern time zone, but um, that worked out too. Yeah. So. From Pacific. That's a big jump. Ooh. It really is. I love being in the Pacific time zone. I don't know why, but I don't deal. I don't deal well. I like central. I like. Yeah. Central. It's kind of cool. It, yeah. It's a little bit behind the hustle and bustle of the East coast, but not of. so far behind that. You're like waking people up at odd hours right. when you try to call them or stuff like that. Right. Well, my sweet, I, I'm definitely going to have to have you back again because I can think of 3,000 other things I want to talk with you about. I know it would be fun to. We will do that. 
It, yes. Okay. We will okay. do that. But for now, uh, I think I want to, at the risk of opening a whole ass can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask anything. Okay. Well, what are you going to ask? Then I will. No, go ahead. No. What were you going to ask me? Right. Because I know you and I know that one would really open up a can of worms. So I'll save that. We'll start there next time. Okay. How about that? <laughs> okay. Okay. So I am going to uh, tell you thank you very much for this and my very first two episode conversation. Oh, well, <laughs> I've been so tempted, but I mm, thank you for letting me get away with it with you. I appreciate that. I can just see people when the, when the second one appears, they're like, oh, my God, gonna <laughs> listen to this. Listen to this guy ramble on. And you know what? That's the beauty of podcasts, darling. They don't have to listen if they don't want to. That's true. They don't have to. You know what? So (laughs) (laughs) we love all you listeners. Well, get us wrong, but that's right. Thank you for doing this with me today. And you know, I love you. And so I love you inside out, upside down and backwards. You are one of my favorite humans. (laughs) Mm. Means a lot. If you're hell bent on wringing every last drop of awesome out of this life and the time you have here, I invite you to visit SuzanneSaysPodcast.com for more conversations and to subscribe. If you'd like to be a guest and have a conversation, email me at Let's Talk at SuzanneSaysPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.